0: Are the days I know, these are the days I know, I know, these are the days I know. David Hoffner, he works in my dad's store. He's worked for twelve years, he'll probably work here for more. These are the days I know, I know, these are the days I know. These are the days I know, I know, these are the days I
1: know. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Gry America show. Um Coming to you, we're re-releasing our episode with Dave McGowan, um, kind of in his memory as he's passed away recently. Uh, but first, as always, Graham. I'll leave it at that. Dunlop. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Thanks for the calm intro. I'm say I've got a good one, but I'm saving it for Saturday.
2: Right on. Well, this is a good idea. You want to r- sort of re-release this episode as a tribute to Dave, and uh, he's one of these.
1: Yeah, I feel bad actually because I just found out the other day, and he's and it, and it happened uh, November twenty second, I yeah. think. But um, you know, and I kind of knew I had heard about it in the fall that he was sick, and I I I had uh, I had kind of lost track of it, and then I seen someone actually messaged us on Facebook and said that uh, he enjoyed our interview with the late Dave McGowan. I was like, fuck. Yeah. So then I went and did some research, and sure enough, yeah, he had passed away about a month ago.
2: Yeah, this was one of our favorite episodes to do, really. Because yeah, it was, it was one of
1: our—at the time, it was probably our favorite, because this was pre-Randall. Yeah. At, at this time, this was—oh, yeah, it blew our minds.
2: Yeah, because it was such—it wasn't just, like, sort of conspiracy-type research. It was, like, flipping the whole paradigm around, right?
1: Yeah, Exactly.
2: And he had previously done stuff like, like you were mentioning, uh, the day after nine eleven. Yeah, he was writing uh, he about did, it being on, a possible On September twelfth,
1: he said the story doesn't jive. Yeah, and I mean, he's been exposing stuff the whole time. Not the least of which was this interview with him. We talk about uh, weird scenes inside the canyon, which talks about the whole uh, hippie music movement, and it's fucking crazy. Like yeah. this one is one you'll hear us go and holy fuck a whole lot.
2: Yeah, in good, this interview because we were getting our minds
1: blown. And, of course, in the last year and a half, we have picked up an awful lot of listeners that uh, some people go back and listen to the back catalog, and some people don't. so if you've heard this already, you don't have to listen. We'll be coming up with a new episode on the weekend,
2: yeah, exactly. He also did research on I think he had a dry sense of humor as well, and he did research on like the moon landing where he made fun of the module that that landed on the moon that looks like it's made out of paper mache and tinfoil and little little rods and stuff <laughs> like that and uh you know, like Christmas wrapping paper and how it had to fly back up and meet with this other module going 4,000 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> the way he writes it in the sense of humor really makes you wonder about certain things.
1: Yeah, you know, he's, uh, he was actually, he's definitely still one of our top, uh, top five downloaded shows. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And um, one of our all-time favorites. So, uh, yeah, rest in peace, Mr. McGowan. It's too bad. But uh, at least we got to uh, get this in before uh, before it happened. So take it, even if you listened, it's probably not a bad idea to just listen again and, yeah. Yeah. Check out, oh, uh, what's the website again?
2: Who, Dave's? Yeah, Dave's, uh, Informed well, Dave, Dave's web dot. CNChost.com, but he's also got uh, Facebook.com. Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon is, and, and there's uh, links to that in the show notes.
1: Oh, yeah. We'll I'm have just the sending the
2: old show notes, but I've updated all our all our standard links at the bottom of it for okay. how to support the show and all that. But also, the intro was done differently from oh, yeah. this episode, so the quality's not the same. I was at home recording with Darren, so it's a little
1: tinny sounding That was before we even had the igloo. The igloo is a spare bedroom. Yeah. Happy days. Happy days. Um, okay, guys. Well, uh, enjoy the interview and we'll be back to our regular rotation this weekend. Peace, Dave. <laughs>
3: And even Jane and Peter Fonda's uh, dad, Henry Fonda, did uh, naval intelligence work during World War II and was related through marriage to both the Rothschild family and uh, a top official in the Mussolini regime.
1: All right, guys, this week on the Grand America Show, we're going to be talking with uh, Dave McGowan uh, a little later on. But first, uh, from, uh, from the big city. How's it going tonight, buddy?
2: Hey, Darren. I'm not doing too bad. Doing pretty good. We're See. doing the non-local thing tonight because we just don't have the time to squeeze everything in.
1: Oh, well, we're not. You are. I'm you're local. Not. I'm yeah, director. you're
2: in the studio and I'm non-local. So I hope it sounds okay. It'll which, sound a bit different. But...
1: Which renders the question if you actually even exist. That's true. Once you're outside of the studio.
2: I think, therefore, I am. So I do exist.
1: Dooby-dooby-doo.
2: And then, uh, remember we were going to do the whole thing like this all the time (laughs) from the beginning?
1: Yeah. Wouldn't have been such a bad idea. So much room. Yeah. By yourself, lonely in the studio. You could have got Joey to produce from home. (laughs) So how you been, buddy? What's new?
2: Uh, Not much. My sister uh, called me the other night, Late. 11 o'clock uh, kind of all excited and uh, they had that uh, UFO sighting over the city of Vancouver which one's that it's no longer a UFO it was, uh, Fireworks. It was No, well kinda yeah but it was uh, let me set the scene a little bit so she calls me she's got a big deck overlooking well she, doesn't, she shares a big deck she lives in a condo and it's overlooking the whole city right basically <clears throat> out the back
1: Joe's got a so, big deck
2: Joe's got a big deck and uh, they barbecue on it. It's like a big shared patio, right? Kind of like a rooftop deck. Anyways, uh, she was there with two friends, and they oh, all saw like, thought...
1: like uh, how I met your mother style.
2: I don't even know that show. I don't mind. But yeah, let's go with that. So they're uh, they're just, I guess, uh, looking at the view over the city, or whatever. And they see these uh, these two uh, kind of fucking weird things flying through the sky, and and they couldn't figure out what it was. And it zipped across two of them, I guess they zipped across one way and then they went back and zipped the other way, or they came back. And anyways, the three of them were trying to explain this to me. And my sister's on the phone and her two friends are piping in in the background. Like I heard him say, uh, it's the weirdest thing I've ever I've never seen anything like that. Like they were truly okay, going, What was that? That just flew over the city, right? And they're saying, Oh, it looks like uh fireworks uh coming out of a plane or maybe there was a plane but they couldn't tell if it was a plane or not but but the the consensus was it was either like anti-aircraft the other idea was like anti-aircraft uh you know when when somebody shoots a heat seeking missile at you and you spray that heat shit out the back to distract it
1: you heard that i've seen that yeah
2: so they thought maybe it's like that but is it a military exercise What is it? And they had a video of it. They were trying to send it to me, and they're looking at the video, and it did zero justice to the actual sighting, right? So anyways, it turned out that it was um, an air show – Trial run, and it was a couple of planes with fireworks shooting out the back. So they showed like cameras in the, from the cockpit and all this. So I guess they kind of like secretly had this whole thing set up where they're going to do this thing over the city, right? So of course the papers glommed onto it. Like they played the fucking X Files music in the background on the on the TV news and got all Ooh, people thought they saw UFOs, but it was really like planes with with uh, fireworks coming out the back. So yeah, it was pretty cool, uh pretty cool stunt. And it it would be it, I saw other videos of it and it looks it looks pretty cool. But what I like about the whole thing is there's a couple aspects like you know, the big picture UFO stuff where where first of all it was hard for me to picture what they saw because there's all these people telling me all these different things and they each had kind of their own take on what it could have been. And even just getting out of them uh you know, like the actual, you know, the way direction it went and how high it was. Like I didn't have the time to just, just, you know, get into all that, all that stuff. Right. Um, But it also shows you that they actually, like, they kind of knew what it was, right? Like, even though you couldn't see the plane, you just saw a bunch of sparks flying through the air. They, you know, they kind of thought, well, it looked like a plane with uh, fireworks coming out the back or sparklers coming out the back. So I think that's indicative of of people sighting sometimes, right, is uh, they know when something fucking strange happens, right? It's not just Venus or the moon or some other fucking simple explanation, right? Like these guys saw what they saw. They knew it was strange. They kind of thought, well, looks to me like, you know, they weren't jumping all over going ETs or UFOs. It was like, well, it kind of seemed like it was planes with with, uh, fireworks out the back. Um, And that's what it was. And then also the video, just not really showing anything significant at all, right? So you see this thing with your eyes, and it looks fantastic. It's like trying to take a picture of a full moon, right? You think I've taken pictures of full hey, moons on?
1: I got a sweet picture of the super moon the other night.
2: Yeah, but it probably wasn't anything near your your naked eye vision, was it? It actually might be better. I was looking no, at today, and I was like, oh yeah, did that you, ever, beer, did you have your better. beer? Did you have your beer goggles on, or? <laughs>
1: where are you going? I'm showing you, you fuck.
2: (laughs) Sorry, I just need a drink of water.
1: No, I did not have a beer goggles on.
2: What is that? That's a blob. That's a white blob.
1: Look how bright it is. Well, that's what it was. It was a white blob.
2: I couldn't even tell you that's a moon.
1: So you're just just proving my
2: point for you. If you showed me that and say, what's this picture of? I'd be like, I don't know, it's a bright light.
1: Yeah, well, everyone else would be like, oh, it's the moon.
2: Thanks, buddy. So you don't agree with me that uh, that taking pictures just does not do phenomenon justice? Oh, I agree with that. Okay, well that's all I'm trying to say. Anyways, yeah, that was uh, that was that was cool. That was very
1: interesting. So they were testing out new countermeasures. What? Well, I think that's what it's called, isn't it? When you shoot shit out the back of the plane? No, no, it wasn't that like at all. It was launch, fireworks. Launch countermeasures.
2: No, it was fires. It was uh, fireworks.
1: Allegedly did they oh, look yeah, like yeah. fireworks,
2: <laughs> yeah, it looked like fireworks, and they showed actual footage of the guys in the in their in their plane too, like real footage afterwards, not just somebody's backyard handicap footage, so there's no conspiracy buddy it's just fireworks out of a plane's ass
1: that's shitty, <laughs> I prefer a good uh a, a good, good conspiracy.
2: conspiracy yeah, well.
1: So, yeah. yeah. Hey, did you hear about that big hole they found in Russia? Serbia, maybe?
2: Was it like uh,
1: Mel's Hole? Who's Mel?
2: Mel was an old uh, Art Bell uh, guest who had a big hole in his backyard. They used to just throw trash in it and stuff, and it was like so deep that they couldn't find the bottom of it. So it was called Mel's Hole, and they'd have him on every once in a while talking about it that's old classic like coast to coast art bell stuff they were talking about on the Graylian report the other night
1: oh were they talking about this same hole
2: yeah probably yeah
1: looks crazy have you seen the picture of it
2: no oh, I haven't even seen it it's
1: like 80 meters across so is
2: it like a blue hole but in the land
1: I don't know I think that yeah yeah exactly they don't know how deep it goes
2: hmm I think it was the Raelians?
1: no I think they're blaming global warming
2: really Yeah, Is it completely circular?
1: It is completely circular. Did somebody
2: make it to blame global warming, or is it really, like, a natural phenomenon?
1: I don't know. When I look at it, it almost looks like something hit there, man. Like, it just, like, melted right in. But what do I know? I don't know much about it. I was just looking at the pictures and shit. It looks pretty cool. And it's on, like, uh, legitimate websites. Hmm. seems legitimate anyway in Serbia.
2: So are they saying it's like a sinkhole then?
1: No, they're saying it was like trapped gas or something that just popped it all out like a cork. Trapped gas, eh? That's probably greenhouse gas, which is making it even warmer now.
2: So, is that is that a regular phenomenon? Like, those kind of explanations always make me wonder, have you ever heard of trapped gas creating holy bubbles?
1: Well, yeah, I think I've seen some like TV shows where like like shit happens to boats, oh, where, like, like the methane comes up from the bottom and the water becomes unbuoyant. I've even yeah, heard people explain I don't know if that's
2: the same thing, though. Were you were you gonna say people explain the Bermuda Triangle as of that?
1: Maybe you'll never know. You cut me off, <laughs> stepped all over me. Please continue, sir. I forget now. I forget once I go off. It's a short it, it's term fucking memory. That's yeah, good, eh? <laughs> I'll come back in like maybe twenty minutes, half an hour.
2: <laughs> do you write notes then?
1: Uh, no. You make, no, you, no, you don't make a note. I, of I scribble. No, you just let it
2: go. You just let it go.
1: Usually when I'm podcasting, I scribble on paper. Yeah, I noticed. But it's I noticed. completely illegible, ineligible and doesn't really fucking say anything. It's not even really doodling. No,
2: it's just a distraction, but you think it helps you pay attention or something like that.
1: It does help me pay attention. I don't buy it. You're a distraction. Cost me from looking at you. Distracted <laughs> me. So do you get any spam?
2: Uh, yeah, I just got one. Uh, <clears throat> synchronicity from our buddy, Gitmo Yoho.
1: Mr. Yoho. I think he's
2: partially responsible for the money bomb being launched in June.
1: Yeah, he was. He was a bell saver. The bell toller. Uh, belt, I I guess know, I guess he tower? was. I guess he was the bell. He was the bell. The bell ringer. Okay, so he, it, was his, it was He was the bell.
2: So he sent. He sent a, a good one in here. So he's got synchronicity of the highest order. And of course, uh, we love Gimoyo. He's, he's one of our favorite listeners. Huge fan. He's helped us out lots, and so this is this is a good Made one here. a UFO
1: so, jingle.
2: This is true. The UFO quote jingle. So think, uh, he I says. I think
1: they picked up what I was putting out.
2: Hey, there's new listeners, buddy.
1: Isn't there? Probably, but they'll figure Something. it out when we get to the segment.
2: All righty. Okay, so he says I visited my brother in Boulder, Colorado last week with my son, who had never been there. So we're going to do all the obligatory sightseeing things, which included a trip up to Rocky Mountain National Park. And of course, the best, or at least the easiest, access to an exquisite view is Rainbow Curve. And he attached a picture of the view from Rainbow Curve. We were getting ready to leave. It was about 11 a.m. and the trip takes about two hours. When I decided that although the trip was worth it, it might be too much of a drive for my five-year-old son. So we decided... To leave a little later, stop and eat, then visit El Dorado Canyon, which is only about 30 minutes away. After grabbing some food, we set out to our destination when we noticed a double lightning strike up in the mountains. So we all saw it as your eyes naturally gravitate towards a mountain view when you don't see them every day. I said, wow, I wonder how close that was to where we were going to go today. Turns out that that lightning struck near Rainbow Curve Overlook at the exact time that we were supposed to have been there had we not changed plans. And then he sent a link to this news story, which is fucking crazy. This is the first time in 14 years that anybody has ever been killed by lightning in the park. And like I said, it is our obligatory destination for scenic views. When I read the news story and where the lightning struck, it really kind of freaked me out. It freaked us all out. These were, in my opinion, synchronicious events of the highest order.
1: Synchronicious, I like that.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) So the other thing is uh, it it injured seven and killed one person this double lightning strike.
1: Did he write synchronicious or did you misspeak? No, he wrote it. Well done.
2: Would I mispronounce one of our listeners' emails, buddy?
1: No, you actually do uh, (laughs) read the UFO quotes verbatim, even (laughs) even the typos. (sighs) That's a crazy one, eh?
2: It's kind of we, – we should have a name for the avoidance of death synchronicity, like certain certain death avoidance synchronicity. We could call it like the, the CD, CDA, CDAS.
1: You know, who were we talking to not too long ago about um, – about uh, fuck, was it Sarah Chetkin or uh, Patty Conklin? I can't remember why. We talked to someone about uh, multiple lives or or having so much to accomplish in your life. And if uh, you've got, I I remember they specifically mentioned exit points. You've got so many exit points. And um, when you get to said exit point, if if you haven't achieved everything you're supposed to achieve, then you just keep right on going. Some reason that makes me think of that. Like it was just meant
2: to be that he didn't make it up there? Because he has to live on, kind of thing. Exactly. He has more work to be done in this realm.
1: Yeah, actually, but I, I say it's probably since he found Grand America.
2: More synchronicities are happening, and
1: mm. he's got f- higher purpose. Yes,
2: yeah, so I was gonna say that your higher power is looking out for you, buddy. But I would like to know more about his thought process on not going, because it's the trippy thing when something changes your mind, right? And it's like, well, our plan was to go here, but we somehow decided not to.
1: Yeah, you wonder sometimes if it even can be like deep down instinct. Yeah. You know, some buried fucking primal.
2: Yeah, exactly. And he rationalizes it by just saying, oh, it'll be too long of a drive for my five-year-old. But really, there's some other deeper gut feeling that it's hard to recognize, right?
1: Yeah, and it's even kind of got a little bit of the ripple before the stick. I'm going to give it a, uh, that's got to be a, that's a nine. Really? Yeah. Wow, generous today. The avoided death.
2: Certainly avoided death. The CDO synchronicity.
1: CDO? Yeah, the certain death avoidance. No, CDA. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah. Do we have a jingle for
2: that? So uh yeah, other than that, just got some cool feedback from from listeners. Um, you know, I, I feel like we shouldn't even say that every episode, but what was CDO?
1: CDA. Certain death avoidance. Uh I like classic death avoidance. Oh my god. Classic death avoidance. No,
2: certain good. death avoidance has a Monty
1: Pythonish ring no, to it's it. It's not certain death though. But that's the point of it. Could just be a maiming. That's the point of it. Uh, Supposed how to is call that the it point? Certain
2: Death. Because it's like a there's a Monty Python skit about certain death. Fuck you live in
1: a Monty Python movie, don't <laughs> you? <laughs> <sighs> really is something else.
2: Oh, okay. Anyways, thanks for the feedback. We got some listeners at uh one in China and uh a couple more, uh, more local guys just saying that they like the show and they like the banter between us. So I don't know. It's just good to hear banter. And and I don't want to. I I also feel it's like. Funny,
1: sometimes we get the most compliments on our banter, and other times we get the most complaints.
2: Yeah, that's. I have a feeling, that that's what it's gonna be like. Because I used to like shows. Old podcasts that I'd listen to, I'd like the, the pre show before the interviews sometimes better than the interviews. So, of course, it all depends on the guests, but. And the banter. And the banter. And I also want to say that uh, people must be listening when they listen to all these podcasts. They must hear, like, over and over people asking for donations and asking for money. Like, I only know of, you know, one podcast I think that doesn't ask for money. And now we're doing it too, but we're really doing it in a different way. We, we don't want to ever charge, should I say ever? We don't want to charge money for extended versions or anything like that. We have no ads. We don't want to do anything like that. We just want to basically cover our costs here and then see how it goes from there. And so we're doing this 50-50 money bomb draw where we get uh, donations from listeners and we'll, give, uh, we'll put the money in a hat and pull one out and give uh, half that back.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah, that's like uh, when we, uh, if we get busy like we have the last little while and we get extra episodes, I think, you know, we decided a long time ago we'll just, um, you know, instead of charging people, we'd like to just throw everything out there and it's more about, uh, uh, you know, stretching the reach than uh, charging charging a select few to hear the content, we'd rather it got as far as it could and, yeah. you know. That's that and if uh, if our donation only model doesn't make us then it doesn't really matter. no <laughs> So yeah speaking of which, check out the money bomb we've been uh, we got another new, new subscriber yesterday so we always like to see subscribers Head over to grimerica.ca/ moneybomb. Uh, let me know if you want an email address if you if you subscribe and uh, there's some some no donation required options there as well. Uh, everything's listed on the page.
2: Yeah, and also if you're on the website, check out the backstage area. That's where you can actually uh, listen to the interview part live. Maybe the intro like this sometimes, but usually just the interview. And uh, join up in the chat room if you want.
1: Yeah, it's something new. We're just kind of dipping our feet in for now. We'll see, uh, see where it takes us. That's actually on Mixler too, right? Mixler, M-X, what? Sorry, Mix? M-I-X-L-R.com. Yeah, slash Gray America, right? Yeah, or grayamerica.ca slash Backstage. <laughs> profound
2: UFO code of the week. <laughs> Alright, time for the profound UFO quote of the week. This okay.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Okay. We had objects with four way confirmation. Ground visual, ground radar, airborne visual, airborne radar. It doesn't get any better than that. In my following of unusual aerial phenomena for the past 50 years, there seems to be some reason to discredit very viable and very reputable witnesses when they say something is unidentified. That's the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Brown, DP, page 247.
1: DP. Yeah. Page so. 247? Yeah. Wonder what that means. Page 247 of the DP. Of the D- DB or DP? DP. Like penetration? <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: as in that.
1: I thought DB like debriefed.
2: Oh, yeah. No. Could be a typo. Could be. I thought that was an appropriate one for Dave McGowan since uh, all the people he's talking about have, you know, those types of connections. High-level
1: intelligence connections. Well, we don't have any high-level intelligence connections or even any high-level intelligence. One day. One day. Get I got vibrations one lined up.
2: up. I got one lined up. One what? Intelligence connection. Yeah. Kinda.
1: CIA? Is it the CIA Twitter feed? <laughs>
2: only when I want to know what's going on with the overall UFO mystery do I follow the CIA Twitter feed thanks guys
1: you heard it here first so uh, yeah Dave McCowan this is a good interview Um, yeah this one's gonna fucking melt some ears I think we had a few people in the chat room and uh and tweeting that we're listening live saying that uh this is one of the crazier ones they've heard, and it it really is a jaw on the floor, sort of. You Blow your kn-
2: fucking mind, isn't that what they said?
1: Yeah, we knew what we were getting into, but uh, we didn't know how deep we were getting into it. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah, um, so other than that, I suppose we might as well jump right into it, right? The, the chat's uh, longer than usual, so it's not super long, but I think it's about uh, 90 or 100 minutes, so... Enjoy the interview, guys. Okay, guys, tonight in Grimerica, we're going to be talking with Dave McGowan, talking uh, Laurel Canyon and the and the hippie movement. But first, uh, the great Graham Dunlop himself. How's it going tonight, buddy?
2: Hey, good, buddy. I thought you were going to come up with some more G words besides great.
1: Yeah, I lost my that's thesaurus.
2: You're shtick. <laughs> so we, we've got, uh, like Darren said, we've got David McGowan here. He was, he was born and raised in California. I think he still lives in California. He's the author of a few Few uh, pretty cool books here: "Programmed to Kill: The Politics of Serial Murder" and "Understanding the F-Word: American Fascism and the Politics of Illusion." And he's just released this uh, this great book here called "We Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon: Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream." So this is uh, this is some really crazy stuff. He's hitting a nerve with a lot of people. He's going to tell us about how. Uh, how he's uh, he's turning into a very popular guy. So we want to. We're glad we
3: got you so soon before
2: you totally explode. So welcome to uh, the Great America show, David.
3: Well, thank you for having me. Very happy to be here.
1: Nobody leaves California, Graham. That's why like Hotel California. Oh, that's, that's right. That's right.
2: You check in and you never. You leave. You can
3: check out, but you can never leave. Right? Or how does that go? Yeah, check <laughs> <Or> in. Something <laughs> like that. So, yeah. Dave,
2: Dave, let's start with some like just sort of tantalizing overview or or like a little summary of, of some of the stuff you've found out about this dark heart of the hippie dream. Like it's uh, I've heard I, I'm I kind of left um, some of it. I've heard a little bit of your talks on a couple of other shows, but I haven't heard some of the tantalizing bits. So I wouldn't mind starting off with a bit of that before we get into too much of the background.
3: Um. Well, there's a number of themes that that kind of run through the book that that are all uh, run counter to the you know the prevailing view of uh, the Laurel Canyon scene, which is um, actually hasn't really been reported on a lot at all. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's actually been very few. Uh, very little there's very little literature that, uh, on the laurel canyon scene and and what there is is only developed like since uh, like two thousand and seven i think when michael walker uh put out his the the what was really the first mainstream book to to chronicle this scene uh his laurel canyon and that's then been followed by a few others and uh you know these these books tend to paint a very kind of idyllic uh you know view of Laurel canyon as this almost Perfect sort of very bucolic uh, hippie commune where everyone kind of had an open door policy, and uh, you know all of these people who were destined to emerge as superstars. You know all of these bands and artists. You know everyone from the Doors and Love and Buffalo Springfield and the Birds and the Turtles and the Beach Boys and Three Dog Night and and um, a whole bunch of other ones. The Turtles, the Monkees. Um, you know, people like Jackson Brown, uh, Judy, uh, Collins, Judy Sill, Joni Mitchell, Carol King, uh, uh, James Taylor, just, I mean, just, it's an, an amazing array of both bands and, uh, singer songwriters that, uh, that came out of the scene in a very short period of time. And the, uh, the the, the 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 picture that's been painted of it thus far is, uh, is, like I said, is this very almost like ideal hippie commune where, uh, you know, it's it was kind of set off from the rest of the city up in the Hollywood Hills in this very kind of rustic, heavily wooded uh, section of the city that, that doesn't really feel like the rest of L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it kind of lent itself to that sort of thing. And, um, you know, like I say, it was just just sort of a scene where it was a time and era where where you could uh, by legend anyway just kind of walk down the boulevard and and you might hear like you know eric clapton and and david crosby and graham nash or something jamming in mama cash's front yard you know and then a few blocks later you go by you know frank zappa's log cabin and there's you know you know whoever <laughs> all these other you know and and literally just kind of just kind of hear all of these amazing songs that are now you know uh, to this day are, are these huge iconic rock songs actually being written and developed in this very you know it's just sort of like a giant hippie commune you know and But uh, as my research has revealed, um, there were very, very dark undercurrents to that scene, and it wasn't all the peace love and understanding vibe that uh you know that we were supposed to believe that it was uh for one thing there was just just an amazing number of military and intelligence connections to this scene uh both in the fact that there was a covert military installation right there in the heart of laurel canyon and in the fact that (laughs) So many of these artists, particularly the ones that that emerged as the biggest stars of the scene and, and kind of the, the spokesmen for the generation, so to speak uh, to an overwhelming degree co- all came from from military career military and military intelligence uh, family backgrounds hmm. and um, and then in addition to that there was just just an uncanny number of of uh, suspicious deaths connected to the scene just you know bodies dropping left and right uh oftentimes very very violent deaths um <laughs> you know like the the two most notorious cases being the the manson murders and the wonderland murders which um which are the two you know considered by the you know veteran lapd homicide detectives to be arguably the two most bloody and brutal mass murders in the city's history and uh, both with direct connections um, to the canyon the wonderland murders actually took place in laurel canyon on lookout mount or on uh, wonderland avenue and that was at the and same time frame uh, that was la- actually later that was 1981 that was as the scene was really had ki- pretty much faded out but there were still some vestiges of it and uh cocaine had really kind of taken over the scene and uh the people that were killed in that were uh were heavy cocaine dealers that were supplying some of the uh some of the stars that were still remaining in the canyon Uh and uh there was uh five people that were brutally bludgeoned in that attack one of them miraculously survived the other four did not and then the uh the other case being, of course, the Manson murders, which occurred in 69, right at the height of the scene. And uh, they occurred a few canyons over in Benedict Canyon. But pretty much all of the people involved, both the uh, victims and uh, perpetrators, were all very much part of the Laurel Canyon scene. And they all kind of ran in the same circles and had mutual friends and whatnot. Wow. Um, you know, uh Like Jay Sebring, uh, for example, he was, uh, he's the guy that is credited with creating uh, Jim Morrison's famous uh, hairdo, actually, his uh, notorious mane that he was so famous for. That was sculpted by uh, Jay Sebring, and he was also a business partner of uh, John Phillips. And uh, had various other connections to the scene as well. And and Sharon Tate was was very much an active part of the scene. She was a regular visitor to uh, John Phillips' house, Mama Cass's house, various other. There were there were certain houses in in Laurel Canyon that were kind of known as as basically keeping open house twenty four seven, where people would just like come and go, you know, <laughs> as they pleased and. Uh, and so a lot of a lot of these people, you know, generally uh, hung out at those at those locations. Sharon Tate being uh, being one of them, and um, let's see who else was. Uh, oh, and uh, Abigail Folger and uh, Wojtek Frykowski, two of the other victims there, actually lived in Laurel Canyon. They lived in a home right across the street from Mama Cass's house. Wow! And and often had the same guests, you know, like people like Sharon Tate would and, and whatnot. They. Uh, <laughs> would visit both of them so so they they all kind of traveled in the same circles very much so and and the uh the killers as well charlie manson was very much a part of the laurel canyon scene and by some reports hung out at both john phillips and uh, mama Cass's house the same the same places where the the victims hung out you uh-huh. know and um uh, And Bobby Bosley, for a time, uh, actually had his own apartment in Laurel Canyon and was the rhythm guitarist, the original rhythm guitarist for the band Love before they were known as Love, when they were known as the Grassroots. So... um, you pretty much all. You know, I mean, to to a large extent, everybody that was involved in that, both victims and uh, perpetrators, were all very much part of the Laurel Canyon scene. So, uh, that was the most notorious, uh, you know, uh, violent series of violent deaths that were that were connected to the scene. But there were a lot of other ones as well. There were a couple of girls' bodies that were. Girls who were who were murdered and and uh, butchered and their bodies dumped in Laurel Canyon during its heyday and uh, people like Ramon Navarro, the silent film star, he was murdered in his home on uh, the date the night before Halloween in uh, either 1968 or 1969. Uh, Inger Stevens, former starlet, was uh, also found dead in her home. Uh, Lenny Bruce was found dead in his home during that period. Sal Mineo was murdered in front of his home. Diane Linkletter either jumped or was tossed off the balcony of uh, an apartment at the mouth of Laurel Canyon. Wow. And uh, so, th- those are just some of the more well-known ones. There was there were all kinds of them. Uh, Graham Nash's uh, girlfriend was murdered. Uh, Jackson Brown's wife committed suicide, David Crosby's girlfriend and president of his fan club was, was killed in, uh, I believe it was a head on collision. Holy
2: shit. And so there's a, there's a ton it, way, way above average as far as, you know, Oh, well, yeah. and, and then the musicians themselves,
3: kind of you know, people like Graham Parsons, of course, who, who, uh, very closely connected to the scene, died out in J- at Joshua tree and, uh, sh- very early 70s, I don't remember exactly what year. Clarence White, who was uh, one of the birds at one time. And just, I mean, just a withering array of people who uh, who came to very suspicious, oftentimes very suspicious ends. Uh, Brandon DeWilde, who was a child actor, turned musician, who was part of the scene. Uh, he was like decapitated, I believe, in a car accident. And mm. it was just. Just an amazing array of very, very violent and oftentimes very suspicious uh, deaths that occurred. Uh, this one one guy named Larry Williams, who was a songwriter, composer. He'd written songs that had been covered by The Beatles and uh, Rolling Stones, various other bands, and had done some uh, some uh, some work on his own. He was uh, shotgunned to death in his in his garage of his Laurel Canyon home. Uh, just it's just mind-boggling how many violent deaths were uh, were connected to that scene, either that either occurred in Laurel Canyon or to people very closely connected uh, With, to yeah, the scene.
2: Yeah. So so that's like, one of the threads of your book, and then and then the other couple threads. There's one that's really the the uh, sort of the Laurel Canyon being an unknown start of the whole hippie movement, right? Like people associate it more like in uh, they hate Ashbury in San Francisco or whatever. And that's, that's, and that's another threat. And then the other threat is, is all the intelligence, uh, connections.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, I would, yeah, I would definitely agree. Yeah. The, uh, the fact that, that it's still that to this day even the mainstream version of the Laurel Canyon story you know the fact that there was this, this this amazing scene that so many bands came out of and that it actually preceded the Haight-Ashbury scenes and produced far more music and far more more influential stars than the Haight-Ashbury scene ever did and yet to this day, you know, if you talk about hippies or flower children or 60s counterculture, I mean, 99% of the time, people's minds go immediately to hate Ashbury. That's viewed as the, the birthplace and sort of, uh, you know, uh, yeah. capital of hippiedom or whatever. And, uh, but it's not actually true. It actually began uh, right here in L.A. In, in little old Laurel Canyon. Yeah, and, when uh, people
2: hear Laurel Canyon, they probably think of the porn star.
3: Is there a porn store? I'm sure there is. Yeah,
2: somebody said, Oh, you mean the porn star? We're like, No, 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 no. The place where the the music started.
3: (laughs) I know there used to be one named Christie Canyon. I didn't know there was a Laurel Canyon, but it doesn't surprise me. Canyon's (laughs) probably a popular porn last name. (laughs) I would guess so, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) So so what okay, let's get into the intelligence background. That's the part I'm I'm kinda itching to hear about. You know, well, I, I, it
1: almost sounds like a string of messy CIA, you know, people who aren't going along with the shtick, just poof, get decapitated in you know, car crashes.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, but I think it goes deeper than that, right? It's, it's uh, if there was an intelligence background, like I don't want to start getting into the hypothesis now because I, I don't know what, what you think about it, David. But it, it seems deeper than that. Like if there was intelligence connections with almost all these people that were there at the time. I mean, who knows what that means? It could mean a number of different things, but, but you've really dug into, to the details in that, right?
3: Uh as much as I can, you know. I mean, you you can't always tell. Um, in a lot of cases, it, it it was, you know. I mean, it was it was pretty explicit in the, in the literature if you dug deep enough. To, you know, you could find out who the who these people's parents are. And in other cases, it's. You know, you got to kind of read between the lines, you know, like like Graham Parsons, for example, uh, his real father uh, supposedly committed suicide like right before Christmas, although it looked a whole lot like a murder. But, uh, you know, that, that's another theme that runs through this book is a whole lot of suicides that may or may not have actually been suicides Um You know, but I mean, that's pretty much the case with a lot of suicides connected to any any bit of weirdness. You know, I mean, any good conspiracy always has a trail of bodies. You know, leading away from it. So, um, but you know, he he is uh, whatever. whatever, However, he died. His his father died when he was quite young, and uh, his mom remarried, and he was raised by his stepdad. And, you know, there's no indication anywhere in the literature that I could find that his father had an intelligence or his stepfather rather had an intelligence background. But what it does state is that his uh, stepdad was very deeply involved with training expatriate Cuban groups um, in the in secret bases in the Florida Everglades to overthrow the Castro regime, you know, during the early 60s, early to mid 60s. And uh and Graham Parsons actually visited these bases on on at least one occasion and was photographed there by Life magazine who later destroyed the photographs and never published them. <laughs> because it, it wouldn't have wouldn't have been too good for for his image I suppose but anyway the point being uh, you know I, I think we all know who was in charge of, of funding and running those operations you know I, I don't I don't think his dad was just freelancing as you know a guy training Cuban expatriate group groups to overthrow the Castro regime so right. you know it, it's not a real stretch to assume that his dad was a CIA operative you know or his dad step- dad rather so but in a lot of cases it's you know it's 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 quite overt you know like like frank zappa was the son of a uh, chemical warfare engineer assigned to the edgewood arsenal originally and frank was actually born there um, on the base Uh, his father was living in uh, housing on the base at the time and he attended school. He attended uh, kindergarten and elementary school. He spent the first seven years of his life, literally living on and being educated at the Edgewood Arsenal, the, which is not only the home of longtime home of U.S. chemical warfare research, but also has been implicated repeatedly in in uh, unclassified documents as being deeply involved in the at MK U- U- various MKUltra projects, subprojects, and that's where he spent the first seven years. Of his life, you know, so that's you know a little odd yeah, <laughs> to yeah, say slightly. the least, yeah. you know. And then you know people like Jim Morrison, whose father was a U.S. Navy admiral who was in—he uh, was the commanding officer of the fleet of ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, <laughs> and uh, so his father was the one who directly oversaw that entire operation that led directly to the introduction of ground troops into Vietnam and into a ten, bloody, you know, 10-year quagmire that left all kinds of bodies and uh, his father w- was one of the key architects in that whole operation and it almost simultaneously with Jim emerging on out of Laurel Canyon as this icon of the anti-war uh, you know, generation. So uh, that, that's a recurring theme throughout the, throughout the book is how many of these people's fathers were sort of directly involved in, in, uh, you know, various military and, uh, covert operations at the same time that the, the kids were, uh, be, you know, being elevated to the spokesmen for the, the anti-war youth generation. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's staggering, to, you know, if you look, if you look at the, the, the people who served as sort of the front men, the lead men, the, the people who emerged as the, as the biggest stars or whatever, uh, you see it over and over and over again, whether it's Jim Morrison with The Doors or Frank Zappa of The Mothers of Invention, John Phillips from The Mamas and the Papas, David Crosby from The Birds, Stephen Stills from Buffalo Springfield, <laughs> all three of the guys from the band America... All of them, who were all uh, all sons of uh, U.S. Air Force intelligence officers, who actually grew up on and met on a military base. Uh, Jackson Brown was born and born on a on a military base in occupied Germany, post World War II. Um, you know, John Phillips was the son of a career uh, Marine Corps officer and his wife. His, or his first wife, his mother, and his sister were all three uh, career employees of the Defense Department, Pentagon employees. So, I mean, his entire family was, uh, you know, inc- including his first wife, who was also, um, her name was Susie Adams, was also a direct descendant of uh, second president of the United States, John Adams. So um not only and that's another common theme actually <laughs> is that not only do you have um not you know, only do you have a lot of people coming from, from a military or military intelligence background, you also have people who appear to be from what I don't know what you would call like bloodline families for lack of a better word. These these families that go back uh really to, to like the Mayflower days to like the, the, you know, families that have wielded considerable power, uh, in the country, uh, for a very long time. Um, uh, David Crosby being a prime example, <clears throat> whose full name is David, uh, Van Cortland Crosby. And, uh um, he comes from a, a trio of intermarried families, the Van Cortlands, the Van Rensselaers and the Van Schuyler families that, uh, have wielded power in this country since since the very beginning i mean you can find them as members of the continental congress signers of the declaration of independence revolutionary war generals civil war generals senators congressmen judges you know short of president they've occupied like every position of power imaginable in this country for over 200 years and uh... Same is true of like like Ed doheny, who was a d- descendant of the the doheny oil clan uh just a, an insanely wealthy family uh Graham parsons family uh went way way back and uh you know one time owned like over half the citrus groves in in uh Florida and georgia and um also uh spawned the Hershey family that founded uh the Hershey uh, Chocolate Company in the city that grew up around it. So, uh, so another, you know, another guy that was
1: indirectly responsible for John Kerry then, or no, oh, really? that's, is maybe that Wesley or is that Hershey? <laughs> I don't know.
3: <laughs> so, so you have, uh, so you have these people that come from these, you know, just hugely wealthy, you know, politically influential families. Uh, and or from you know mili- career military uh, or intelligence families, and often the two of them combined, you know like, wow. like Graham Parsons, who whose family you know was was both. Um, so those those you know yeah they they, uh, they don't really you know I mean when you look at <laughs> when you look at these people, they don't really seem to fit the mold of just sort of these struggling grassroots uh, musicians, you know, who kind of came together to form this this organic movement, you know, because yeah. uh, their family backgrounds just don't tend to indicate that, that, that that's the case, you know. And, and that's actually another theme of the book is... Just how strange it was that this scene formed where it did, and how quickly it did, and and uh, just how quickly these these bands were uh, were put together and put out there and promoted and, and became these just just uh, you know hugely successful bands seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, and um, so that so those. Oh go ahead. No, well that's that's a
2: huge list of of connections. I mean it, it's it's kind of overwhelming. And and when you I mean obviously if you looked at one or two of them on their own, it wouldn't really not mean anything. But when you put it all together like that, that's pretty crazy. The strange thing that I find is that it's from such a variety too. Like it's almost like a a piece from every uh, you know, um compartmentalized uh military Background, like there's the the U.S. Air Force and the you know the the Col- <laughs> ox, the M MP- K Ultra stuff, the chemical warfare stuff, the Department Department of Defense. Like, it's crazy. So, so um, what would people say? Like, would the skeptical people say like the people who go, "Oh, this is just a you know a conspiracy theory, blah blah blah"? They obviously got famous because they had these connections, or it was easier for them to kind of climb up the ladder because they had you know wealthy backgrounds. I mean it seems like that really wouldn't fly, but I can see a lot of people trying to say that.
3: Uh, well, the, the thing that I get a lot is, is people saying, well, you know, it makes perfect sense that that, that, that these uh, that these people would choose the path that they took because they right. were rebelling against yeah. their parents. They were yeah. rebelling against the values of their parents and going in exactly the opposite way. Yeah. And- and i could see that if it wasn't to such an overwhelming degree and my argument is that in the 1960s pretty much every kid in the country wanted to pick up a guitar grow his hair out in front a rock band you know and you know so a lot of them didn't have talent but quite a few of them did and you know, was it really only the sons and daughters of the the military establishment that had what it took to rise to the top? Or were they just the ones who were promoted and and sort of maneuvered into that position? And, you know, I would tend to to go with the latter, you know. And um, another thing that kind of you know another 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 key another another piece of the puzzle is that some of these people actually had prior connections um frank zappa's wife for instance gail (coughs) Sloatman, it was her maiden name she was also a uh a navy brat her her father and Several generations of her family were uh, career, career naval officers and naval intelligence officers. So she came from that very same background, and she actually knew uh, Jim Morrison when they were like five years old. They knew each other through oh. nav- naval officer circles and actually attended the same kindergarten together when they were five years old. Yeah, that seems. And, According to industry legend, she actually supposedly hit Jim over the head with a hammer in their kindergarten class when they were just, you know, little toddlers. But anyway, so, you know, it's a little odd that 20 years later, just out of nowhere, uh, both of them just almost simultaneously show up in Laurel Canyon. He as this larger-than-life iconic rock star, and she as the wife of another iconic larger-than-life rock star. And then on top of that, Frank Zappa's manager was this shadowy guy by the name of Herb Cohen, who happened to have a cousin by the name of Howard Kalen who fronted another Laurel Canyon band known as the Turtles. So all... All three of these frontmen for these bands, who all landed in in Laurel Canyon like pretty much simultaneously as the head, you know, the frontmen for these bands, all had this curious web of former connections before they all just happened to arrive there. So you know, I mean, at some point you got to say just just how many coincidences can there be here? You know, before this has to be some kind of a a planned. You know operation of some sort, because it just doesn 't seem very organic that these people that you know all come from and herb Cohen was a very shadowy figure as well before he arrived on the scene as a as a Frank Zappa and other people 's manager um, he had you know he had a pretty curious history. he just happened to have been in the Congo at the very time that the uh, the CIA was toppling. Um, Patrice uh, Lumumba, I think his name was, they staged a coup, and he just happened to be in the country at that very same time, (laughs) and then after that, he showed up in, like, Northern Europe, operating as an international arms dealer, and then next thing you know, he's in Laurel Canyon as Frank Zappa's manager, (laughs) you know, so... So all of these people just have very, very curious backstories for, you know, for people that, that were kind of spearheaded this, uh, this whole, you know, peace, love and understanding and flower power scene. And, um... So, yeah, and, you know, and, and, and there's, there's more, you know, I mean, Emmy Lou Harris, she, she was another one. She grew up on a series of, uh, military bases in and around Washington, D.C. And, you know, I mean, just, and just on and on and on. And then actually, in addition to, uh, In addition to to all of them, there was also what were known as the Young Turks, who were the young, up-and-coming, hot Hollywood stars of the era, who also moved into the canyon and lived and partied amongst the rock stars. Uh, People like Bruce Dern and Dennis Hopper and Peter and Jane Fonda and Sharon Tate and uh, all of those kind of people, Uh, they were all They were all intermingled in the scene, and, you know, all of them, all of them as well. You know, Dennis Hopper acknowledged uh, not long before his death that his dad had been a career intelligence operative. Um, You know, his official bio says that he was like a farmer or a rancher (laughs) or something, but according to Dennis Hopper himself, his career spanned all the way back to the OSS, pre-CIA, you know. yeah, yeah. uh, He'd been an intelligence oper, operative for a very long time. Uh, Bruce Dern's uncle was a skull and bonesman, and his godparents were um, Adelaide Stevenson and uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt were his godparents. So, I mean, he was deeply politically connected, um, you know it's just it's a uh, Sharon Tate was the daughter of lieutenant colonel Paul Tate US Air Force I believe intelligence you know and and even Jane and Peter Fonda's uh dad Henry Fonda did uh naval intelligence work during World War II and That's crazy, and yeah. was
1: It's fucking and was
3: related and was related through marriage to both the Rothschild family and the and a top official in the Mussolini regime.
2: See, and And it's not just you're you're not just spouting off names of famous people here. Like there's a connection to Laurel Canyon. Like these people were all around the same time in the same place, kind of getting famous together.
3: And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the actors were just as much a part of the scene as, uh, as the musicians. And, in fact, there, you know, a few of, the, uh, a few of the, the very iconic films of the 60s were, were very much a product of Laurel Canyon, including Easy Rider. Um, yeah. was very, very much a, a, an outgrowth of Laurel Canyon. You know, the two main characters, uh, Dennis Hopper's character was, was based on David Crosby, and uh Peter Fonda's was uh based on um supposedly either Graham Parsons or uh, Jim McGuinn. Uh, mm-hmm. And these are all guys that that rode their motorcycle, you know, just did, did uh routinely, you know, David Crosby had a big triumph motorcycle that he routinely uh raced through uh Laurel Canyon on dressed in the buckskin jacket and whatnot, you know, looking every, every bit the the the, <laughs> the character that you know. And all, you know, most of the music in that movie is, you know, from Laurel Canyon bands like Steppenwolf and the birds and whatnot. And uh, even parts of it were even filmed there. And uh, same with The Trip, the movie The Trip, which was supposed to be a a cinematic version of an acid trip, which, you know, again, started the same. It was written by Jack Nicholson and starred Peter Fonda and uh, Bruce Dern and uh, was filmed in a house in Laurel Canyon that was later occupied by the band Love. So so all these people were very closely connected and all very much a part of the scene and um, and all from very, very similar, you know, family backgrounds. Now,
2: now sticking along that same vein, wasn't there something about the uh, where they were situated, like on some sort of uh, old military base or something like that? Yeah, that's
3: the other. That's the other weird thing is that they also happened to be huddled around a covert military installation that <laughs> supposedly primarily served as a uh, a covert Hollywood studio. Basically, it was a a covert according- Hollywood studio. Yeah, it was a full service film studio. Uh, was that's where they shot be- the moon landing. <laughs> yeah, I believe. I, I think they did the post-production work there, actually. (laughs) um, It was said to be the the world's only full-service film film studio, that they could do everything in-house, you know, by necessity, obviously, because they couldn't really, you know, farm stuff out. So uh, they had everything, sound stages, temperature-controlled film vaults, an animation department, special effects department, uh, complete a complete, you know, soup to nuts film studio that was said to be the most advanced in the world. It happened it's, to be on
2: an old covert military base.
3: It's claimed that, uh, you know, that some of the technology that later, you know, drifted out into, uh, you know, mainstream Hollywood studios uh, was pioneered there. Some of the, you know, advanced, uh, you know, visual effects and sound effects and whatnot, uh Actually began life there. Uh, the curious thing is that they claim that the primary purpose of the facility was to process the raw film stock from all of the uh, the uh, atomic bomb tests of the 50s and 60s, and that uh, that was its primary purpose was to um, to process all this raw film stock, but you know, that doesn't really make any sense, because why, you know, all you need for that is a dark room, why would you fly it all the way to a covert facility in Laurel Canyon that that's equipped to make complete films, you know, <laughs> so obviously there was a whole lot more going on there than what, than what they claim, and, you know, it could very well have served as, as something other than, than a film studio as well, but, uh. It was definitely, it was definitely in operation officially till at least 1969 and by some reports uh, beyond that, but it was definitely in full operation, um, throughout the mid to late sixties, you know, I mean, the the scene really started to develop about 64 or 65. I think the birds first album came out in early 65 or something. That was the one that really sort of set off the whole folk rock revolution and, um, and the facility was definitely in operation till at least 1969 so for like the first five years the, the the peak years of this of this scene it was in full operation you know so you had you had personnel reporting to duty in this in this studio you know right in the midst of of this whole hippie peace love and music scene so um so it was kind of a strange location for yeah. them to, you know, it's it it more than a little odd that all these sons and daughters of, of this very same establishment just chose to huddle around a military facility, you know, hidden up in the Hollywood Hills. Well, so it's funny you thing. should
1: mention the actors because, I mean, we are, it's common knowledge these days that the, the CIA has, you know, had their hands in the entertainment industry why wouldn't they have gone the music road as well? I wonder if, I bet you that Justin Bieber is up to something.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think pretty much all of Hollywood is controlled these days, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it always was. It's... uh... I mean, I, I, to me, it's kind of, it's just sort of the media arm of the CIA, basically. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah exactly. The propaganda exactly. arm, maybe, I guess you'd call it. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think the intelligence community exerts a lot of control over uh, Hollywood and has for a very long time.
1: So have you always thought that? Is, there, is that something you kind of fell into as you were writing the book, or...?
3: no before that i've you know i've done other research on on hollywood going all the way back to the earliest days and you know there's just there's always been weird things that go on in hollywood there's always been unexplained suspicious deaths you know going all the way back to like Thelma todd and uh uh, thomas Ince, and you know these people from, from like the very earliest days of hollywood there's been uh there's been deaths that have been swept under the rug, and and uh, very curious circumstances surrounding those deaths, and uh, it's just it's just there's just been a lot of weirdness in Hollywood for a very long time, you know, and uh, and 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 people in Hollywood tend to do very strange things at times, you know, that just sort of get people just kind of shrug it off and and you know accept it as business as usual, you know, when. Like, uh, you know, Margot Kidder is found like huddled under a bush in somebody's backyard in Glendale, you know, <laughs> or, or, uh, and Hayes goes up knocking on somebody's door saying that she's just getting beamed up to the mothership, you know, or Robert Downey Jr. decides to go to sleep in a neighbor's, uh, bed <laughs> or, uh, you know, Martin Lawrence runs out on Ventura Boulevard, waving a gun and shouting obscenities and shit, you know, <laughs> Stuff like that just happens all the time, you know? And I think there's a reason for that, you know, that, the, that there's so much weirdness going on in Hollywood and so many unexplained deaths. And just, Gia LaBeouf's the new one.
2: What about him?
1: He's going off the deep end. I thought Is i he? seen something the other day saying he was going off the deep end. Yeah, hmm. there was some video, too, about him talking about uh, phone calls and everything being recorded back in, like, 2009.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah, he's he's been making some really strange public appearances lately. Like, didn't he, like, show up somewhere with, like, a bag over his head yeah, or he something? he showed up with a
1: bag on his head that said, I'm not a celebrity <laughs> a anymore.
3: Weird, sh- yeah. Well, you know, I mean, well, before that, it was Joaquin Phoenix, you know, just, uh, just going off on a bender and then saying, ah, oh, that was just all performance art, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wasn't he (laughs) saying he's going to be a rapper? I I mean, that whole thing was just weird. They did like the weird appearance on Letterman, and then they made like this very strange movie, and, and then he, you know, and then he's back to normal. And. You know, I mean, it's it's just par for the course. You know, Britney Spears goes nuts and shaves her head and starts speaking with a British accent, and you know, doing all this. And then they ship them off to rehab and get them, you know, give them a quick tune-up or whatever they do. I don't know. And like the
1: MK Ultra breaking down.
3: I I think it is. Yeah, I think I think it's it's I think it's I I honestly believe that that celebrity rehab centers. And and I'm not talking about just rank-and-file rehab centers where, like, the, you know, street-corner junkie would go. I'm talking about, like, the, the Betty Ford Center, the Wonderland Center, the place where... You know the Lindsay Lohan's and the Britney Spears and whatnot get shipped off. <laughs> I, I think they, you know, just uh, to, to a large extent, they operate as sort of reprogramming, reprogramming centers. Reprogramming. I was they, just going to say that. Yeah. Where oh. they send these people to get to get them back on, get them back online. You know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, I yeah, that's what it seems like to me. You know. I mean, I don't know how else you explain it. You know, there's, there's, these people just go. You know, they just really just. Go completely off the deep end, and then they ship them off to rehab, and a few months later they're back and resuming their careers, and everything's fine. And yeah, can't and just all be, Scientologists. It, it can't just be fame <laughs> either, you know. Like, and the, um, yeah, they say, well, you know, that's just it's because they're in a fishbowl, and they're no different from anybody else. They're just. You know, if if you shown that bright a spotlight on any subculture, you'd find all the same stuff. But I don't think so, because my friends don't do that kind of stuff. You know, nobody, nobody that I've ever personally known in my life has done anything nearly as weird as what people in Hollywood seem to do on a pretty regular basis. Actually, (laughs) you know.
2: (laughs) So, so getting back to the threat of of uh, of Laurel Canyon and the connection, like if you were to put your crazy conspiracy hat on, and Darren, this is kind of like question for you too like what or is mom. going on with the with the intelligence <clears throat> like if you were to just go completely out there what would be the reason for <clears throat> gathering all this together and creating this this hippie movement i guess i don't even know what to call it there's so many things you could call it but this whole subculture
1: that's where they sit be- in their
3: roots man they're all started I believe- I believe that one of the main purposes was to sabotage the anti war movement which uh which had already started uh before the hippies came along, which is a lot of one thing that a lot of people don't understand' cause a lot of people a lot of people have, people have a lot of misconceptions about the sixties and and that's that's quite deliberate i think you know um one of them being that it, that that uh, you know San Francisco was the birthplace of all this when it was actually l a and the other one being that I think to a very large degree, most people these days think of the hippies flower children as being synonymous with the anti war movement hmm. and uh, you know and I did myself for a very long time and but that's not really the case there there, there was a budding anti war movement. <clears throat> That was already in place before the hippies came along, and uh, and they were none too happy to see the the hippies come in and sort of take over the the game. And uh, it really began on college campuses, uh, you know, and, and was was basically being led by these very you know clean cut, intelligent uh, you know college professors, very you know respected, uh, respectable and uh you know very mainstream sort of college uh, professors and their students and um in no time at all they were kind of displaced by the hippies and then the new face of the anti-war movement became you know the this long-haired, you know, bearded, stoned, you know, these people that that to mainstream America, you know, to most of America were just just like from another world you know i mean just you know to go from from the very sort of conservative uh stoic 50s to these wild and woolly 60s where all of a sudden you had people with these crazy hairstyles and clothing styles and this this all new music and this you know that open drug use and free love and you know a whole new lingo and i mean Everything about it really seems like it was kind of designed to be offensive to mainstream America, and I think that was quite deliberate. I think that that face was quite deliberately, and I, you know, I mean, I grew up thinking of myself as a hippie, so you know, I mean, I, I had the long hair and the clothes and all that. So, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not looking to bash the hippies, but you know, I mean, the reality is that to most. To mainstream America, to like Heartland America, uh, you couldn't really have put a more foreign, offensive kind of alienating face on the anti-war movement than uh, than what the hippies did, and you know I th- I think that was that was quite deliberate. And like they so say cute. that there was, they knew that the war they they were already planning on heating up the war, and they knew that you know the draft was coming, and, uh, and there was going to be there was going to be resistance. And because
2: right, it um, went on until so like mid 70s, right? I think, didn't it? The war, uh, we actually, <laughs> yeah, we
3: actually, uh, I think we pulled out in 73, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, which is another, you know, another mis. in my opinion, anyway, another misconception is that the hippies ended the war, you know. We, you know, uh, you, you talk to these aging hippies and they'll tell you that they won, you know, they got <laughs> some- <laughs> like really because, uh kind of drug on for 10 years there, you know, and I mean, even after, even after it reached the point where the National Guard was gunning down students at Kent State, it still drug on, you know, that was, I think, 1970, It still drug on for two or three years beyond that, so, you know, the notion that the hippies uh, ended the war, just, it doesn't really jive with me, so, um, yeah, I I think they were put in place Specifically to derail the anti-war movement and and ensure that the war ran its course, basically, um, which it did, you know, well beyond the '60s and you know, in the into, uh, I, well, I think it was 1973, wasn't it? That yeah,
2: 73, three or five. I thought it was 75 for some reason, but. Go ahead, Darren Scott. Darren, we're we're uh, fighting over each other to get in here, get a word in edgewise here. What what do you got? It Darren? was
3: somewhere in there because I know my my oldest brother was born in '57, and he was coming up very close to draft age by the time we, because uh, he was getting nervous. Oh was, yeah,
2: yeah, eighteen or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, he
3: had like a year or two to go, I think, when we finally pulled out, and uh, and they they stopped the. Uh, they stopped the draft for many years after that. Yeah. So, but yeah, he was getting a little nervous there. <laughs> I remember. So crazy. yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't know. I want, I want to say 73, but it might've been 75. You might be right. I'm not sure. Yeah. The way I, I figure that's
1: just cause that's when they fucking figured out that they could do this. And that's why like, you see little heat like That's why I think you're able to find evidence of it back at back those days. Like these days, I think they're still up to the same stuff but they've got it so perfected that we don't know. Like, you're not finding the stuff that Dave's dug up. Because the 60s, that's when they were you know, they're killing people and they're just trying to get Cover them. their
2: tracks kind exactly. of Exactly.
1: They're just kind of learning how to do it. And now they've got them all mind-controlled. I, and
3: I, I agree. I, yeah. You know, one one of the, one of the things, that, another question that I get quite a bit, people will ask me, well, are you saying that these people had no talent? You know, that they were just... Uh, <laughs> you know, no talent bums that were, that were only in, in, in the position that they were in because of who they were. And no, I'm not saying, you know, I mean, i I still listen to that music myself almost daily. You know, I grew up on it. It was, you know, the soundtrack to my, my early years, you know, and, um, you know, I recognize that some of these guys were just, I think some of them were overrated, but some of them were just like hugely talented, just amazingly talented artists. And, um, I don't. I don't know that you could say that today. You know, I don't, there's such a huge disconnect now between the level of fame and you know critical uh, response and actual talent. You know, I mean, you you look at these these stars now that just sort of come out prepackaged out of nowhere and have these huge like out of nowhere have these huge international fan bases and you know tens of millions of hits on their videos and whatnot and you know I I don't really think that that can be explained purely in terms of talent if you're you know looking at like a Miley Cyrus or a Lady Gaga or a Justin Bieber or you know whoever the flavor of the month is yeah yeah um, there's just, there's a huge disconnect nowadays between talent and, and the level of fame and recognition that these people achieve in such a, a short period of time. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, they've had 50 years of practice from 1964 to now. And I think it, the star making machine has developed to the point now where talent is almost kind of secondary you know if you got a marketable if if they can give you a marketable face and image they can make you a star you know and um so yeah in a way the 60s were were kind of the golden the golden (laughs) the golden era because although i do believe it was very much controlled uh talent was still you know very much a part a part of the equation to a much larger extent than, than I believe it is now you know I just I don't know I look at these artists now and I just I just don't see anybody that has that level of uh, You know, like like a Frank Zappa or a a Brian Wilson who was just, I mean, these guys were just phenomenally talented as composers, musicians, producers, arrangers. I mean, just, you know, uh, Brian Wilson from the age of 19 was like given complete creative control over his music. It was like unprecedented. Hmm. You know, he, he, he wrote it all, performed it arranged it, produced it, you know, uh, the vocals, the, most of the instruments, I mean, just an amazingly talented guy. And uh, I, I don't know that there's a lot of people like that around these days, you know? Um, not that I could see, anyway.
2: So let's let's say that your theory is, is correct for, for this example here. We, we just talked to a guest uh, earlier, and we were talking about the uh, expansion of our consciousness, like sort of going along with the expansion of the Internet and how we're really challenging the scientific paradigm and this type of thing. And he, he equated some of that expansion of consciousness to the hippie movement, actually, that just happened tonight. And do you think that it – so if you're right with your theory – Um, Do you think that in some ways it backfired and that it did create um, a culture of love, let's say?
3: Um, You know, that's an interesting question. Um, That that comes up all the time, particularly in regards to, to LSD. You know, I mean, most people that have done their homework know that it originated with the intelligence community and, and was researched as a, through the MK ultra project, various MK ultra sub projects. It was, uh, you know, uh, people were dosed without their knowledge and whatnot. And, uh, so most people, you know, recognize that it was a product of the intelligence community and was likely deliberately introduced into the community. But then there's considerable debate about whether it backfired or not. You know, did it achieve its purpose or did it actually end up enlightening people and yeah, expanding yeah. their consciousness? And, you know, that'll probably always be a debate. Um, I I think it worked much be, worked out much better than, than a lot of people seem to think so. Um, better for you them? You know, I... Uh, yeah I, I think it served its purposes to a larger extent than most people seem to think because I mean basically I mean to me you know the, the whole the whole hippie uh, you know the, the whole hippie philosophy was was kind of uh, you can't fix the world, you know, you, you can't, you know, there, there's no way you could fix all this, so the, you know, the, the solution is to sort of create your own, uh, create your own little slice of paradise, you know, go off to a commune, and, uh, you know, you can't fix everything else in the world, but you can just you know go off in your own little commune and uh create your own little your own little paradise your own little your own little private paradise which is great you know for the group involved you know uh, assuming it doesn't descend into a manson situation you know uh, but that's not really the, the answer to stopping a war or or achieving any kind of real meaningful you know social change and you know tied in with that was the whole the whole lsd thing and leary's uh you know often repeated you know turn on tune in drop out so you know i mean the message to a large degree that the hippies were getting and sending out was was not to try to fix society but to drop out from society and form your own little utopia you know and and you know, as t- as as good of an idea as that seemed at the time, it was really counterproductive to uh, to stopping a war and, and achieving real, you know, uh, change on a society-wide level. So I, I think it was more effective um, than what a lot of people seem to think. But you know, again, that, that that's that will probably always be a point of debate whether it uh, you know backfired and and if so, to what extent.
2: I was going to ask you about the drug scene. Did did you come across a lot of that uh, in the in your research at Laurel Canyon? Like, um, was that a part of this whole thing? I mean, everybody well, thinks uh, it was, but
3: Owsley was a big part of it. Uh, he was he was the big acid chemist, you know, um, who was uh, stationed up in San Francisco, who was supplying just just. Unbelievable amounts of uh, putting just uh, unfathomable amounts of LSD on the streets and oftentimes for free. You know, he's the guy that anytime there was a big festival going on, whether it was, uh, Altamont or Monterey or the human being, or, you know, any, any big music festival or big hippie gathering, he, you know, he pretty reliably showed up to distribute free acid, you know, like sometimes thousands, tens of thousands of hits, you know, dosing the entire crowd. And, you know, he always said that, uh, that his motives you know and and most most people who knew him say that his motives were purely benevolent that you know he was just he wanted to turn on the world he thought this was a great experience and he wanted everybody to to be a part of it you know but given the the his his background which was also you know very strange and uh, you know his family background involves various politicians, and he himself did radio intelligence work. and you know he's got he's got a very curious backstory himself. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, the question could could be raised was was he really the benevolent, you know, Johnny Appleseed, you know, running around the country giving everybody free acid just because he was a, a good guy or or was he, you know, was this all a part of a planned, you know, operation to? you know, affect whatever changes it was they wanted to make in the youth culture. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of open questions, there, you know, and, and I, I think there's, in, in a lot of these cases, there is there is room for, you know, reasonable people to disagree over the effectiveness of, you know, what, whether these things had effect And I tend to think that they, that they largely did succeed in their goals, but, uh, you know, other people disagree, so...
1: I wonder if he was just with a, that. almost like some sort of weird <laughs> social experiment where they want to see the effects of dosing, you know, mass amounts of people with LSD. Maybe they were planning on dropping acid uh, on the Russians.
3: I, I, yeah, I think it was social engineering on a large... I mean, to me, you know, things, uh, Woodstock especially. Woodstock seems to me like a, just a big, giant, open-air... Uh, MK Ultra operation, <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, you had these people that were basically trapped there. You know, once they got there, they couldn't get out because their cars were were boxed in by eight million other friggin' cars. You know, I mean, these these people were basically prisoners there. They had like almost no fucking sanitation to speak of. They were deprived of food. They were deprived of water. They were deprived of sleep for you know like days on end. They were fed acid. They had this rock music. Just just constantly, you know, going, like, almost 24-7 for, like, three days. And, I mean, to me, the whole thing just sounds like, a, you know, it doesn't really sound like that pleasant of an experience, you know, for a lot of these people. It just it seems like they were kind of human guinea pigs, you know?
2: I'm trying to picture the the military industry, like the higher-ups in the military industrial complex with this whole Laure- Laurel Canyon thing, right? Like okay we've got like what is it a bunch of them in, the, in a dark smoky room going okay we've got this old military base right near LA let's turn it into a studio send all these all these people we know there like all these connections we have with people that are have uh, you know kids that are aspiring musicians or maybe not even like I, I just can't uh, I can't grasp how that would all happen with such a diverse backgrounds in the, in the intelligence community and then, did these people did all the the musicians themselves like were they uh musicians from kids or did they were a lot of them like turned on to this at the last minute did you know turned on yeah
3: um uh, yeah Uh, it it varies um some of you know some. Some of them were, were in the music from a very young age. Jim Morrison was probably the most unlikely rock star to ever walk on a stage. Um, he himself has said in interviews that uh, he never had any previous interest in music, and that uh, he didn't. He rarely listened to music. That he'd only been to you know one or two live uh, concerts in his life. He'd only seen like one or two bands ever play live didn't listen much to music, never learned to read or write music, never learned to play an instrument. He said he never even sung. In one interview, he said, I'd never even conceived of the notion that I could open my mouth and make sounds come out. No, or I think he, was, like. he, was more,
1: he considered himself more of a poet, I think.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, he had no musical background whatsoever and no, even, even by his own account, no interest in uh, pursuing music. And then out of nowhere, and I, I have a picture of him uh, in the book, uh, seeing his father off He's, he's uh, standing side by side with his dad on the bridge of the, his father's ship, the USS Bonham Richard, right before he set sail for Southeast Asia and uh, Jim was there seeing him off, and I mean, you'd never even recognize him. He, he's this short-haired, clean-cut, very collegiate, conservative-looking kid, you know, there alongside his admiral dad. And then, like, a year or two later, he emerged into this completely different persona, and suddenly he's a rock star, even though he'd had no previous training or interest in music whatsoever. Next thing you know, he's writing songs, and... uh he's this larger than life rock star. So, uh, in some of the cases, they definitely seem to just sort of come out of nowhere. Uh, but you know, in other cases, uh, you know, they, they, some of them were definitely very skilled musicians, you know, um, but, but some of them, you, you know, like the, the birds, the, the very first band that, that came out that, that really ignited the whole scene, um, uh, it was like almost as contrived as the monkeys you know <laughs> you had you had five guys in there and only one of them was considered a very proficient musician which was jim mcguinn the lead guitarist a 12 string guitarist who was uh who was widely regarded as a very good guitarist but uh the guy that, that uh they put on bass, Chris Hillman, was a formerly he was a musician, but he was a bluegrass mandolin player. He'd never played a bass guitar in his life. And the uh the drummer, Michael Clark, uh, had never never picked up a pair of drums he'd played bongo drums on the beach this is fast drumming experience the guy had never picked up a, a pair of drumsticks so literally their entire rhythm section had never even played their instruments before before signing with the band they'd never even <laughs> never even played those instruments and uh, you know David Crosby and uh, Gene Clark were just passable as guitarists uh, their parts were played by session musicians on the albums um so the only one that actually played on their initial albums was uh, the only one of the five was Jim McGuinn every all, all the rest of it was done by studio musicians because they, they they had no idea how to play their instruments really and yet they were the they were the ones who who blazed the trail for all the other bands to follow you know they were they were the first ones out of the gate the ones who who, who pioneered the whole folk rock uh, sound and um just completely contrived you know i mean they, they hardly wrote any of the most of the music on their first album was uh covers of like bob dylan and and other uh folk uh folk singer songs like half the album i think was like dylan tunes <laughs> so i mean their whole first album was created by taking other people's music having it recorded by studio musicians and then having them layer their vocals on top of it. That was basically their contribution to the album. And, uh, and, and that was the album that, that, that started this whole ball rolling, you know, and it, it- could not possibly have been more contrived, you know I mean this was not like these five musicians that came together and said, "Hey, we ought to form this band, and you know I'm a ba- i 'm a play bass. what do you play you know it was it wasn 't like that at all I mean it was like these people were basically cast to be in this band, and uh so you know there's a very contrived uh flavor to a lot of the the first bands that came out of there that that just sort of came together much too quickly and, and not really in in the way that you would think a, a band would sort of organically form
2: and then all you need is some influence in the radio and the media to just push it push it like they do these days with all the music and then uh, instant instant stardom and then I guess the start of that whole musical kind of
3: revolution
1: wasn't it pretty well the same studio musicians that were doing was uh, it was the, the rest of them
3: it was the wrecking crew. It, well yeah, Hal Blaine on the drums, Carol Kaye on bass, uh Leon Russell actually on keyboards, uh Glenn Campbell, believe it or not, played a lot of the guitar parts. Um Larry Nektel was uh what did he do? He was something. I don't know, but it, yeah, it was uh it was this team of very crack uh studio musicians known as the wrecking crew who were in very high demand who uh, who played on a lot of, a lot of, a lot of their, uh, their records, actually. And um, actually, I read a quote not long ago from um, a drummer from uh, a fairly contemporary band. It wasn't like a real huge band. real. Uh, the, I think it was the, the drummer from Toto or something like that and uh the quote was basically uh i don't i don't know i don't have it verbatim but he basically said uh, that he was devastated to learn that his 10 favorite drummers from <laughs> for of all time were all the same guy <laughs> hal Blaine
1: cuz uh, yeah funny.
3: i mean they they played the. They played on the on the Beach Boys albums. They played on the Birds albums. They played on the Mamas and the Papas. They played on the Turtles. I mean, they were all of these. Ba- you know, I mean, to this day, all that music that's on those landmark albums is, you know, that that people assume was played by the people pictured on the cover. Uh, yeah, it was all actually played uncredited uh, to the wrecking the wrecking crew uh, to a, to an amazing degree. How many how many of these iconic songs that we all know and love uh, were actually played by this group of, of, at the time, anonymous uh, studio musicians, which is one of the reasons that the monkeys, you know, I, 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 always you know, I throw, I toss in the monkeys when I'm doing these interviews with, with all these other bands and, you know, every once in a while someone will, be kind of shocked like well, why would you throw in a you know obviously fake contrived band like the monkeys with you know all of these hugely talented bands but the reality is that the monkeys were very much accepted as part of the you know musical fraternity the musical community and uh we're very much a part of the scene and you know if you look through pictures from that era you'll see you know, like uh, Mickey Dolenz hanging out with David Crosby and and uh, and Eric Clapton in Mama Cass's front yard. And you're like, what the hell is Mickey Dolenz doing there? <laughs> <You know>? but, <laughs> but he was very much accepted as a part of the scene, and and a big reason for that is that these musicians knew something that the public didn't, which is that it wasn't only the Monkees albums that these guys were playing on. The very same people were recording their albums as well, you know?
2: <laughs> in, so, in the turnkey studio that used to be a covert military <laughs> base. So,
3: so, so, yeah, I mean, there was a, a lot of elements that just seemed very... Uh, sort of contrived, you know, and and not uh and the speed with you know, the the, you know I mean you think of a sort of a like the folk music that preceded it, that was much more of an organic, you know, movement that started with these You know, starving artists who were, you know, struggling to, you know, get gigs at coffee houses. And, you know, if they're really lucky, they might get a little airplay on college radio and, you know, slowly but surely maybe try to work their way into the main street. But these guys, I mean... Some of them within like days or weeks of landing in Laurel Canyon, all of a sudden they had bands, they had contracts, they had recording space, they had rehearsal space, they had new instruments. And they're, you know, they're getting promoted by big name labels like Capitol and Columbia. I mean, these weren't, you know, they that's another thing. They weren't signed by like indie you know labels they were signed by the biggest labels in the country you know and promoted by the biggest radio stations and um so you know it was very much corporate big big you know big time corporate money that was backing these people right from the start you know they didn't they didn't have to go through the the, the starving artist period you know they, did, they didn't have to suffer for their art so
2: to yeah, speak that, that makes more sense now that I, I didn't realize that those those record labels were backing them either
3: yeah yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they signed immediately to like Columbia, Capitol, uh, you know, I mean, all, virtually all of these, uh, Electra, you know, I mean, they, they all signed, you know, right away. I mean, there was no like intermediary step where they started off with a small label and then after a couple albums, they got picked up by Capitol or whatever. No, they, I mean, they were signed right off the bat, you know, and um so, yeah, it doesn't, It you know, the more the more the elements you look at, the less and less organic it, it starts to feel. And there's another uh,
2: element, too, that we didn't touch on yet that I'd like to before we run out of time is uh, the fashion and the, the party, uh, was like the L.A. dance scene or something like that you were talking about.
3: Oh, the freaks, Yeah, the uh, Vito and his uh, dance crew who are largely credited by a lot of people on the scene as being literally the the first hippies. Um, There was this guy whose name was Vito, who was quite a bit older than the rest of the crowd. He was already, like, into his 50s, whereas, you know, most of these guys were barely out of their teens, (laughs) And uh, he had a group. He was kind of a Manson-y kind of character, actually. He had, a, he had sort of this l- large entourage, many of whom were attractive underage girls. And um, so like Charlie, he was kind of a real popular guy to have around because he always brought these young, attractive, ready, willing, and able young women along with him, you know, which, uh, which, which made ch- which is why Charlie was more than welcome to spend the whole summer with Dennis Wilson, you know, because, um, uh, so Vito was very much in that same mold. He, uh, he had this, this whole entourage of, of uh, largely young, attractive women and, and, uh, and guys as well. And, they are largely credited with with uh, with being the first hippies, with with creating the whole the hairstyles, the clothing styles, the whole sort of attitude, and uh, and they were like a freeform dance troupe that would go out to the clubs, and um, and they created quite a spectacle. They uh, they were actually you know as popular, and in some cases more popular than the bands themselves. Uh, and they were they were one of the the ways in which these bands were first to initially uh, uh, achieve the audiences that they did because when they first started out, you know, LA didn't have a music scene. That's or not much of a music scene. That's another strange thing is that um, you know when wow. these bands congregate congregating in laurel canyon la was not considered really much of a music center they didn't, didn't have a, a huge live music scene didn't have a uh a big recorded music scene and the industry actually grew up around all of these artists um so that's another thing that that is kind of weird that the, the the industry followed the artists rather than the artists going to where the industry was so <laughs> Another thing that's curious is that they decided to settle in l a but but anyway, so uh no sooner did these bands arrive and start getting signed than uh all of these clubs started to pop up, Cro and the whiskey Go and the kaleidoscope and the London Fog and Beatolitos and numerous others that are long forgotten now just sprung up all along sunset strip and so um you know suddenly you had all of these these venues there for, for all these bands to play. And I just completely lost. What was I? Oh, Vito. (laughs) I I think you're going to talk about uh, Vito. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, so the, but the thing was that these clubs were, a lot of these clubs were brand new. They did not, nobody knew, you know, anything about these clubs. They had no clientele and these bands were brand new. They were just coming out. Nobody really knew them. And so the way that the, uh, the way that the club promoters got people into the clubs was by recruiting these dancers to come into their clubs and create this, this big public spectacle on the dance floor. And which was, you know, uh, very widely publicized. And the other, uh, the other thing was, was the young Turks, which we talked about earlier who were also widely publicized to be out hitting these clubs on a regular basis. So, um, the the uh, the draw and I and I have a lot of quotes in the book from people who were on the scene including even some of the band members themselves saying yeah you know the the people weren't coming to see us they were they were coming to for a chance to you know to see uh Jane Mansfield or you know to a chance to rub shoulders with uh Peter Fonda and to watch this crazy insane you know drug-fueled spectacle going on on the dance floor and uh and so that's that's what really put some of these clubs on the map initially, and, and got the people out there and onto the strip to see these bands was uh, was this this, uh, this group of freak dancers. And um, so they were, although largely forgotten now and only mentioned in passing in most of the literature about the scene, uh, they were considered you know hugely influential in. Uh, in really g- getting the scene off the ground and, uh, and a- very closely tied to the birds that Vito studio was actually the birds rehearsal space. So he, he was one of the key players in, in launching the very first band. From and, the beginning. And, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, from right from the beginning, uh, he and his group were, were really hugely influential in getting this scene going and raising public awareness of the, and then when the went on the road, for the first time, the first band out of L.A. to go on a nationwide tour, they actually took a uh, portion of the troupe with them on the road and would have them dance for them in these clubs in, like, middle America. And it was was, uh, to a lot of, uh, you know, people in various uh, corners of the country, it was their very first exposure to what would soon be known as the, you know, hippie culture. Um, they were they were the first ones to to get out there and uh, go on the road, so to speak, and and uh, start introducing this whole thing not just in LA but all around the country. You know, so yeah, they they were they were hugely influential and almost completely forgotten now, and very difficult to dig up much information on them. Really, <laughs> considering what you know, what a key role they they did play in, in getting this whole scene off the ground.
1: You know, it's funny because it makes perfect sense because you're talking about the the Young Turks being involved and the young actors because you can kind of, you can force your way into show business in a way back then, you know what I mean? Like you make the movies, so you decide who's on the screen, but music, you kind of, you can't really force it. So you kind of combine the three different aspects to kind of massage it into people until, you know, they learn to associate it all as one
3: yeah yeah i suppose <laughs> yeah
2: so is there, is there anything else uh that we've that we've left out as far as like sort of big stuff that the listeners should know about um i don't
3: know i'm sure there is yeah. um it gets pretty deep yeah you know, there's a lot yeah the, the, there's a lot of detail in the book um you know one of uh yeah, I, I don't know if we've, we've talked about this at the beginning, but I'm sure you guys know that it, that it began life as a web series, uh, in 2008. And I worked on it as a, as basically as a, as a, series of, uh, blog posts for like four or five years to up until like 2012, 2013, something like that. When I, when I, uh, signed the book contract and, um, the benefit of that is that uh, the book is much more richly detailed than it would have been because I uh, got so much feedback from readers as I was going along, you know, and I'd write about some specific person or event or, or place or whatever, and then I'd get all kinds of feedback. Hey, did you know that this guy also did this or he also knew so-and-so or his dad was this, you know? And so I benefited greatly from uh from all the feedback from my readers and uh, was able to make this a much more richly detailed story than, than it would have been. So um, yeah, it's packed with all kinds of names and dates and places and, and uh, various threads that run through it. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's hard to get everything in there, but I, I think, I think we covered most of the uh, most of the main points pretty much. And you
2: were talking to us at the beginning before we started recording about. I I, I think you're pretty happy with the uh,
3: how this book has taken off so far. I am overwhelmed and a <laughs> bit humbled, and uh, still wondering if it's actually happening. Because oh yeah, it's I. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by how many Amazon reviews I've gotten. I'm amazed at, at how well the sales seem to be going. Um, just the overwhelmingly positive response that I've gotten by email and, and through the book's uh, Facebook page and whatnot. Uh, I mean, there's some haters in the crowd, but, you know, I I I knew that, you know, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I knew that going into it. That's uh, That goes with the territory, you know, not everybody's going to love it. There's definitely going to be some haters, but uh, they're vastly outnumbered at this point by the the people who just have been heaping praise on it, um, almost to an embarrassing degree, actually. Some of, the, some of the introductions that some of the radio hosts have given me lately, I'm just like, really? Are you, are you, are you sure you're introducing me? You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> but like introducing me like I'm a rock star, you know, and yeah I uh I, I'm still trying to get used to to uh to all the attention and all the all the all the the rave reviews I've been getting so um of course you know a lot a lot of the earliest readers were are my hardcore fans who followed it online and were chomping at the bit to get it as soon as it you know as soon as it re, it was released and you know, as more, as more time goes by and the word of mouth gets out there, it's getting more into the hands of uh, people who aren't, you know, familiar with the material or with me. So, um, it gets, gets decidedly more mixed reactions from, (laughs) from, from those people than, than it does from my, you know, my hardcore followers. So, um, but so far, I just yeah, I couldn't couldn't really be happier with the with the reception that it's gotten, and uh, I'm I'm shocked and and thrilled and overwhelmed and everything else at this point. So can, um, I'm just gonna ride this wave as long as I can, and uh, you know, see where it goes.
1: Are you right? Are you working on anything new, or do you have anything any any plans for for something new in the future? <sighs>
3: mostly i've been working on the lincoln assassination which uh doesn't seem to resonate with people nearly (laughs) to the it's it's definitely a a big step down from laurel canyon i don't know maybe a uh maybe i'll uh, maybe this will be like uh you know this will be like my uh my book that i can never again equal or something you know this will be my this is like my uh I don't know what parallel Yeah, it was, I'm, trying yeah I'm trying to, to think, to think of that word too. That like the like the you know like the the, the you know like Michael Jackson you know can never your, top Thriller, your right? Thriller, he, yeah. This is your you Thriller. Know? I mean once once he put that out, that was it because he was never gonna be able to top that again, match or top that. You know, so I I don't know maybe, maybe this is my Thriller. Maybe this is <laughs> maybe well, I think, this is good, as good as it gets. I don't know. <laughs> I think you've <laughs> really it.
2: uncovered uncovered uh, some stuff here though, right? The people just weren't aware of like hitting something like the lincoln assassination where people have you know already kind of given you the facts between the, the commonalities between uh kennedy and lincoln and the crazy synchronicities there
3: but you're yeah really,
2: you're really hitting the nerve uh and resonating with people on this one everybody well, knows yeah, about that's... the hippie movement and nobody probably knows about the what you've uncovered here
3: yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Actually, that uh, you know, little old me, the uh, you know, un, very unprofessional journalist with no, you know, no, no real journalistic training and uh, no network of connections or anything else, managed to dig up this story that had been lying dormant, you know, completely untold for. 40 years you know before i dipped into it in 2008 it was completely fresh unplowed ground you know your mom and dad Uh, don't
2: work for the cia do they
3: no (laughs) no they're they're uh, both retired public school teachers actually my dad (laughs) my dad was a woodshop teacher and uh, my mom uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom until my brothers and I got into like junior high and then she went back to college and got her teaching degree and uh, taught for a while also in the same district as my dad yeah
2: that'd be let down
3: my family background is kind of boring, actually. Yeah. Well,
2: that's good. That's
3: important, I think, for this book. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm uh, I'm very I'm very proud of the work I did, and uh, yeah, I don't you know I don't I don't know that I I don't know that I could could ever could ever equal this again because I mean how many how many stories are there like that that have been you know. Just lying there undisturbed for for that long, you know. Yeah, that's um,
1: definitely a once in a lifetime.
3: Yeah, you know. So uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I shot my wad, and uh, that's <laughs> it. You know, I. <laughs> but. I don't know you know I mean I I wasn't looking for a story when Laurel Canyon came along you know yeah. I mean I just stumbled on it completely by accident and then voila here's this story you know I don't, I don't even remember what I had been previously working on probably nine one one or something and and uh, at first it just seemed like a, a you know a, a little distraction that I'd look into for a while and then get back to whatever it was so you never know you know you never know what what, what you could stumble across you know I mean I could be on under- it's a trail of something completely different six months from now. So you just never really know. Well, we'll hope
1: for the latter so we can hear <laughs> all about it uh, down the road.
3: A lot of people keep have been asking about a sequel actually. I've gotten a lot of you know people like, you need you really need to do the same thing with the British invasion or you need to do the same thing with the punk and new wave movement. Or oh, you need to, you know, you need to do the same thing with the Seattle scene with you know the grunge, yeah, and Tolkien, I was thinking and the grunge. scene and you know, I'm like, yeah, I could spend the rest of my life digging. You know, you know, the, the, the dark there's side one, of the music industry, but you yeah, know
2: there's one that we've talked about on the show that's kind of in parallel to what you did. And, it, and it's fascinating whether, you, whether you're uh, into this type of thing or not, but it's called Alien Rock. And a guy wrote a book on all the rock stars influenced by their UFO or crazy like extraterrestrial encounters. And, and the list is massive. It kind of reminds me of a, a thread that you've picked on here where it's just this hidden, hidden influence on uh, popular rock stars.
3: Really, is Grand Parsons in there? Because I know he—that uh, was one of the, He, you know, he died out in Joshua Tree. I'm sure. I'm sure you probably know. Uh, but um, that was one of his favorite pastimes. By a variety of reports, was to uh, go out to Joshua Tree, drop acid, and uh, watch for UFOs. Which, you know, I'm thinking if you're going to watch for UFOs, that's probably a pretty good way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he probably
2: is. Like, the, the list is, is huge, too, right? I mean, there's, all, and there's guys like uh, with one of the Van Halen guys is coming out now, and people are starting to come out now talking about their, their beliefs in this. So it's, it's kind of one of those things that's uh, helping, uh, you know, again, evolve our consciousness.
3: Yeah, I I, w- I wasn't really familiar with that, but uh, yeah, I'll, I know that Graham Parsons was a uh, a big devotee of uh, of that. And because uh, I, I don't know, you, you go out, you drop enough acid, I don't know how you're ever going to know if you actually saw a UFO or not, man, because you can pretty much see anything you want to see, you know. Exactly. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's I know I I don't I. I didn't come across anything else uh, among the Laurel Canyon people, but then again, I wasn't specifically looking for that. So, um, did you did yeah, you find
1: anything on the twenty seven? You know how you people are always talking about yeah. how all these people are dying at twenty seven.
3: Ah, well, I mean there there was there was definitely some additions, you know, from Lowell Canyon, <laughs> uh, you know, uh certainly Jim Morrison, you know, being the most uh the most famous of them. Uh what the significance of that is, I I'm not really sure, you know. I mean it does seem to happen quite a bit and uh, even today you know, to this day, you know, you get people like Kurt Cobain and you know, Amy Winehouse and whatnot. Um I there could be nothing to it, you know. Andrew. I mean he, he, it's uh, you know it's quite possible that if you picked out some other random age, you could find ten or twelve uh, you know major rock stars that died at that age too. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, much ado about nothing. I'm, I don't know. Um, I don't know that the does the number twenty seven have particular occult significance? You know, if, not if it was not 33, that I. Kn-
1: Three would be cool.
3: <laughs> well, see that's that's been that's kind of one of my sort of operating theories is that 27 is 3 cubed 3 to the 3rd power which written oh. out looks like the number 33 <laughs> And so, you know, I'm not a a numerology guy. I know there are a lot of people that really get into that kind of stuff. But that's the one thing that has occurred to me is that 27 can be written as three to the third power, which obviously looks like 33. So, you know, maybe that's something. I don't know.
2: I love it. I was trying to think of that myself, (laughs) but I, I couldn't get there.
3: Yeah,
1: that's I think that's a perfect, perfect way to fucking wrap up. I like it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so yeah we'll link to all your stuff in the show notes and uh yeah we just really want to thank you for coming on and and uh we you know hopefully uh you have a safe and and
3: long fun ride
2: on the wave here
3: uh i hope so you know i mean i keep wondering when, when it's gonna end you know i'm like this, this isn't you it's know, this gonna isn't be a while yeah, but- you know, I mean, I'm still selling books. You know, I'm I'm selling uh, signed books directly through my website, and uh, it slowed down somewhat. You know, I mean, there was a pretty mad rush originally, but I'm still making trips to the post office every day. I don't think I've missed a single day since the book was released, and uh, I'm still getting interview requests on a pretty regular basis. And you know, but I I keep you know I realize at some point it's just going to suddenly die out and you know, the book sales are going to slowly die, you know, crawl to a stop and the interview requests are going to stop coming in and people are going to move on to the next, uh, thing, you know, but, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to write it as long as I can. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes.
1: Well, congratulations. It's, it's well-deserved. Well, we'd like, we'd like to really thank you for coming on the show and we'll make sure, uh, we linked to your website and, and the book and everything else in the show notes. Are, are you on the Twitter or the, Oh, you said you had a I, Facebook page for the book. Right?
3: I am not on Twitter. I am not a big fan of social media. Uh, my, my publisher insisted that, that, uh, social media is a, a key, um, a key part of any, you know, sort of grassroots marketing campaign these days and, uh, put, leaned on me to, op- to start up a Facebook page, which I was reluctant to do, but I did. And, uh, it's been quite, it's been a learning experience. Cause I, you know, I didn't, I, I, I didn't know about like trolls and, and, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of administering a, you know, controversial, uh, you know, uh, Facebook page. It's, um, not, hasn't gone exactly as I Hoped in every way, but I mean, that's been really rewarding as well. I think I have like 1600 followers on there, you know, after the, the book's been out for what barely two months now, it came out April 30th, and uh, and I got yeah, I got like 1600. Well, you know, which I'm sure I obviously pales i'm sure miley cyrus has like 12 million followers you know so, but but uh to me that's a pretty big deal you know to, to to have 1600 facebook followers when i've never even done facebook before so uh but no they they wanted me to set up a twitter account also but i i i, I honestly i don't even know how that works I'm, I'm, i know nothing about twitter i to, I, I always kind of looked at it as I thought it was just sort of there to feed the egos of celebrities, you know, so they could compete to see who had the most followers or something, you know. <laughs> I think Bieber guys,
1: has the most.
3: Does he? Do you guys have? Do you guys do Twitter? I mean, is it actually a useful tool? Darren, or? Darren does. He
2: he's uh yeah he uses it quite a bit actually. It's, it is a a useful Market. tool for him. I'm I'm not on Facebook or Twitter, so I totally know what you mean.
3: Yeah, I I was very reluctant to to dive into the uh, and the the page that I set up for myself so that I could set up the group page. I actually set up as my dogs page. So the picture and all the all the biographical details are actually my dogs because. Uh, I'm just, you know, I mean, I, I know they already got all my info, but I don't want to just hand it to them. You know I mean? If if the <laughs> fucking NSA wants my data, they should at least have to work for it. I shouldn't just, you know, just hand it to them on a goddamn, oh, here you go. What else you want? <laughs> you know, at least work for my data. Don't, you know? So yeah, I'm not a big fan of social media at all. And I, I, I kind of doubt that I'll go and go the Twitter mode, but, uh. You can find me on Facebook. If you're already on there, y'all just search for it's just Facebook.com, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, all is one word. Or I'm sure if you just go on Facebook and search for Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, it'll pop right up. And uh, if you're a Facebook-type person, that's where you can... Uh, that's where I'm. I'm keeping all the updates on the book, as far as you know, interview schedule, any personal appearances, um, various pictures that I've taken. You know, kind of the, the visual cues that go with the book, and uh, all that kind of stuff is, uh, is on the Facebook page. So if anybody's interested in, learning more about it, uh, that's that's pretty much the place to go. I wonder what the slur
1: for a Facebooker would be
3: the what the slur the what do you mean oh
2: i don't know i'm, yeah, that, I'm at a loss <laughs> well <laughs> well we'll link to all that anyways dave and so so for our listeners like dave's facebook page and and uh, yeah good luck with the rest of your
3: sales and yeah it's uh, we're, we'll keep an eye on your journey all right well thank you for having me and uh good talking to you guys and best best of luck to you and all of your endeavors
0: Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a trace A doubt in my mind I'm in love I'm a believer I couldn't leave her if I tried Out to get me. That's the way it seems. Disappointments haunted all my dreams. And then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. Not a trace. A doubt in my mind. I'm in love. I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried.
2: And welcome back to the Grammarica Show. That was our fascinating, crazy chat with Dave McGowan.
1: These are the days I know. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, I can't wait to actually, uh, we'll have to have Dave on again because it just seems like he's another one of those guests where it seems like you're just sort of scratching the surface. Yeah, you know what we didn't get into much? He
2: started off uh, talking about this and, and I hadn't really heard this to that level before but all the all the the deaths and the murders right do you do you wish we would have got into that a little bit more or did are you okay just leaving it as it was
1: no it would have been good to get into but i mean that that again could be a a whole episode in itself
2: yeah did you think what did you think about that was there
1: some sort of trend or well, coincidence, exactly, coincidence on that? Exactly what I mentioned in the episode—that it was just you know new, uh, new intelligence agencies or what have you getting their their feet wet and learning how to how to play the game that they play so well today. Hmm. Not today; they're not as sloppy.
2: Oh yeah, right. You did say that. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, I, I kind of would. I could see that. It's just hard to imagine the amount of work that would take just to say we're going to try and start up some fringe movement to discredit the war so that we can discredit them.
1: Maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe that's why everyone's a slave these days because the Doors fucking hypnotized them. We're all MKUltra. Ultra. <laughs> You've heard break on through to the other side. You are a fucking MK Ultra fucking waiting to go off. Who knows <laughs> what the cue is. I went through a doors phase. I'm still in my doors phase. I know. That's why I bought you that shirt. JMO.
2: So, yeah, that was... Oh, man, that was a great chat. So, we'll have to... I, I think his book's going to resonate with a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I, I figure it's got bestseller
1: written all over it.
2: I was talking to some people at a dinner last night about it and they're just they're just staring at me like, holy fuck, really? Like nobody nobody's really heard that that part of it.
1: No, it's uh, it's definitely opened even my eyes, and you know, like we're kinda got our ear to the ground. And I'd never really heard any of these connections brought together before. Yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Who are we gonna have? I think uh, the next one in our little f- fucking flurry of episodes here is going to be patty conklin right
2: yeah another fascinating one a lot of people in the chat room like the like that episode too so that episode will be coming out and uh you'll be getting this episode probably after we chat with a couple other people right the uh, bigfoot guys possibly and oscar uh, miro casada a peruvian shaman
1: yeah we've officially booked uh Randall Carlson as well for, I think we're going to have that in the backstage. On a Saturday? Saturday the 26th, I think, at 4 p.m. Eastern.
2: See, I think that's another blow your mind too, right? Like, uh, it's not really fringe as far as like uh, 14 or paranormal. It's just blow your mind as in like (laughs) all kinds of elements of what the, where the mainstream's missing the ball, right? With history
1: and climate and... Yeah, that one could easily go a, a couple hours or more. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, hopefully we'll be able to reel in Duncan Trussell here soon, too. We've been kind of back and forth with him for a while now, so hopefully we can seal that up. We'll let you guys know, of course. You get Try to do us- the
2: drunken tussle.
1: Drinking water with his headset on. Sorry, buddy.
2: <laughs> and you could- you can take care of that in post, right? Nope. <laughs> Anyways, spam gram. I want you to I want to hear Darren say it. It's working.
1: Spamgram. Don't spam, spam the thumbs spam Darren. You don't spam Darren, you just spam Graham. <laughs> I take the PayPal.
2: Yeah, you take the PayPal. <laughs> yeah, and you spend the PayPal. So uh that's G R A H A M at Gramerica.com. Thanks for the subscriptions. Uh, Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the feedback. Review us on iTunes if you can or in any other podcast format or make some comments on the website. It always helps.
1: Yeah, reviews are are huge. So uh, if you can take five minutes and pop over and give us a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, I think we can throw – we'll probably throw the link actually in the show notes this week just to make it a little easier. Right now, just click on show notes, review, done deal alright thanks again buddy alright guys enjoy the uh, outro music and we will see you probably in less than a week
0: I never seem to finish all my food I always get a doggy bag from the waiter so I just keep what's still unshoot and I take it home save it for later but then I deal Microbes, enzymes, mold and oxidation—I don't care. I got a secret trick up my sleeve. I never bother with baggies, glass jars, Tupperware containers, plastic, cling wrap—really, a no-brainer. I just like to keep all my flavors sealed in tight with aluminum foil. foil. Never settle for less. That kind of wrap is just the best. To keep your sandwich nice and fresh, stick it in your cooler, cooler. eat it when you're ready. but maybe you'll choose, you'll choose, you'll choose, you'll choose. a refreshing herbal tea. Hmm, lovely. Oh, by the way, I've cracked the code. I figured out these shadows. And the Illuminati know That they're finally primed For world domination And soon you've got black helicopters Coming across the border Puppet masters for the new world order Be aware There's always someone that's watching you And still the government Won't admit they face a whole moon landing Thought control race, psychotronic spanning. Because I made this hat from aluminum foil. foil. Where I had this foil lined in case an alien's inclined to probe your butt or read your mind. Looks a bit peculiar, Peculiar. seems a little crazy, but someday I'll I'll prove. There's a big conspiracy.